This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Good evening, uh, and welcome to a special occasional episode of Suite 212, a show which, put, which puts the arts in a social, cultural, and political context. I'm your host, Tom Overton, and I'm joined this evening by the writer Sharomi Pinto. Hello. Hello. <laughs> to talk about her new novel, Plastic Emotions, which responds to the life of the Sri Lankan architect Minette Silva, 1918 to 1998, mm-hmm. by weaving together fact and fiction, and is published tomorrow, I think. Um, it's not published tomorrow. It's actually published on the 11th, but it oh, launches Oh, it launches tomorrow. tomorrow Different yeah. things. Sorry. No, don't worry about it. <laughs> Easy mistake to make. Uh, and it's published by Influx Press. Uh, and in fact, I think today has just been chosen as the, of the, as the book of the month at Tate Modern, I believe. Yes, it has. Which is good news. Uh, Shiromi's first novel, Trust, uh, that's T-R-U-S-S-E-D, uh, which was published by Serpent's Tale in 2006, was described as audacious by The Independent, brilliant by uh, Diva, and fast, blackly funny, and so cool that it hurts by The Times. She's written short stories for BBC Radio 4, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and OpenDemocracy.net. Uh, she was born in London and raised in Montreal, and she works full-time as a senior editor at Amnesty International's International Secretariat here in London. Uh, hello, Sharomi. Thanks for coming in. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me here today. You're welcome. Um, so, I think probably a good place uh, a good place to start is by asking you um, who was Minette de Silva. Mm, who was Minette? Um, I think you know. In a way, I mean, Minette should be better known than she is today. Um, she was uh, an architect. She was Sri Lanka's first modernist architect. And she was the first Asian woman to become an associate of the Royal Institute of British Architects. She um, lived in and worked, I guess the height of her practice was somewhere around the 1950s and early 1960s. And she studied at the Architectural Association here in London. Um, She came here after the Second World War. And she stayed until sort of around 1949, which was around um, uh, Ceylon, as it was then known, Sri Lanka was then known as Ceylon, um, that was around the time that Ceylon became independent. Mm. Um, and then she was called back to to um, to Ceylon by her dad, really. But she was quite an extraordinary character. She came from a family that, um, I suppose, a very privileged family. They, mm. they were... Um, intellectual elites really but also political elites um and so she was accustomed to mixing with this really sort of high class society i guess um like politicians like nehru and gandhi and mm. um and then when she came to um the uk she and to europe she just sort of fell in not fell in she found her way in um mm. to a really sort of um you know I guess, elite crowd. So she was um, socializing with artists like Picasso. Um, and um, in the course of her of her time um, in Europe, she met Le Corbusier. Mm. And um, Le Corbusier became kind of a mentor to her. Mm. Um, in the book, I, I say that she met him for the first time at um, this International Congress of Architects. But in fact, she met him before that um Mm. but you know i I changed things a little bit for the for the novel at any rate people do say that they had quite a close relationship and i've imagined their relationship to be a little bit more than um than what she ever admitted to which Mm. was you know that they were just friends and they had a very loving correspondence Mm. um Knowing what Le Corbusier was like um, and his reputation with other women as well, I and also Minette's reputation, I suspect you know there might have been a little bit more. And for the purposes of my novel, mm. I've definitely imagined that there was a bit more to it. We'll we'll, we'll move yeah. on to that shortly. Sure. <laughs> um, but what did uh, just sort of sticking for the moment, just with mm. the sort of like the kind of the factual kind of outline? Uh, mm. What what did what did uh, Minette build? Like, what, so. 
she, um, when she went back to Ceylon, uh, she tended to build for her family friends. So her clientele tended to be people that were known to the family, and that was just how she kind of got into it. She tended to build rather nice villas, mm. um, but she was very focused on kind of keeping costs down. Um, she ensured that um, the buildings that she created also were not buildings that, although she was a modernist, she kind of rejected this idea that, you know, we should just plonk a building down um, on, on a landscape and that that landscape is there waiting for this building to arrive. Mm. In fact, her view is that you know, we need to look at the entire context um, and and build accordingly. So she uh, coined this um, idea of um, modern regionalism, and she she really wanted to kind of bring in the traditions that you would find in you know, as in the traditions that that were found in Sri Lanka, and kind of integrate them with the best that modernism could could bring. Mm. Right. So she she brought this kind of synthesized version of architecture which um, subsequent architects really built on mm. um, so you know she had a very very um, active I guess um, uh, clientele she built a number of houses private houses she also built a couple of flats she worked on a huge housing um, project um, up in the north uh, near Kandy which is the second largest town in Sri Lanka. Um, and that was highly successful. She mm. managed to kind of bring together, you know, Buddhists and Muslims and Christians into this one community and created a very harmonized kind of community, especially at a time when um, the political situation and communal tensions started to um, really sort of come to the fore. Mm. Um, and they were really building um in those post independence years mm. so um her her thing was to really look at um uh, local crafts and integrate them into her building um so she struck up you know kind of relationships with craftspeople as well mm. in the, um, craft villages um and they were you know really integral to to her building and her style and if you look at um, architecture today in Sri Lanka, you'll see that um, this tradition of the arts and crafts really still um, is still very much alive. Mm. Um, and after Minette, you know, the big architect that everyone talks about is um, Jeffrey Bauer. Mm. And I don't think really that he he would have been what he was, um, and I don't think he would have built what he did if not for her and mm. her pioneering um, thinking. So, yeah, she was extraordinary. And how did you, how, how did you sort of first hear about her? How did you come across her, her, her life and work? So this is kind of, you know, it's a friend of mine actually worked with her oh. and he used to tell me stories about her. And, you know, this was just kind of over the years, he would tell me about this this woman who, you know, he said, oh, she had this relationship with, you know, Le Corbusier, and she used to know um, David Lean, and she had an affair with him as well. Mm. Gosh, she had, who did she not have an affair with? Anyway, <laughs> um, and so she, um, she just sounded like this amazing person. And I then um, went off and decided to do a bit of research on her to find out a bit more mm. for myself. And then... Um, and then I don't know, it just the story just started to kind of, I suppose, spin itself in my mind. And um, and I carried on doing quite a lot of research. And um, and yeah, and then I took it from there. I got a grant from the Arts Council to do to do some research and mm. travel a bit in, in India. Um, and I went to Paris. So, you know, I did a fair amount of um, looking and reading and researching and all of that together you know, brought her, you know, just kind of made her come to life, I guess, for mm. me. And I decided that, frankly, you know, this is a story that really needs to be told and that more people need to hear about because if I'm fascinated, other people mm. will be as well. So did, from the beginning of the research, did you always think this is a novel? This is rather than there was never a sort of, I might mm. write a kind of nonfiction thing about it. It was always, you know, because, because you'd written nonfiction before, that, that was yeah. the, always the idea. I mean... 
I guess I could have written um, a biography or something, but um, and you know I'm a student of history, so I I could have. Mm. But the thing is, I had my own vision of who she was mm. and my own interpretation of who she was, and also there was a story in there that I think I could only have told um, through fiction mm. rather than something you know. I suppose not dry, but you know it would have been a very involved um, process, and maybe I'm just lazy. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, you know, I kind of it's just more fun to write a description, so Fair that's why I did. Uh, and probably a good way of, uh, of proving that is that perhaps <laughs> you re read some from from the book if you, if you would. Like yes, a, I can do that. What do I need to? I need to change my glasses. <laughs> glasses for, yes. for listeners. Glasses yes. are being changed. <laughs> um, Right. Um, so at this stage, what has happened is Minette has, um, she's returned from England to Ceylon and she started on her first build. Um, in the book, I've called her first build the Arya Parlor Lodge, it was actually the Karunaratna house and that was in Kandy. Um, and she's she had quite a few issues with her client and um or her clients rather and she because of those issues she's kind of just fled back to europe which she's been missing a great deal and she's also been missing le corbusier um so she goes back um to europe and she heads to paris to visit her friend mimi and she meets up with le corbusier and then after that she moves on so we are we catch up with her now while she's in Italy um, and she's sitting in a piazza. After Paris, Minette went to London for the Festival of Britain and watched the king open the new Royal Festival Hall. Models of tankers were moored in the Thames while the v exhibited the only surviving model of the Great Exhibition of 1851. The festival hall itself impressed her, a modern building for a modern age of entertainment, she had thought. She enjoyed the excellent acoustics in the auditorium itself, although the mass of the outer building troubled her, sitting like a hen on the ground. Minette tries an olive. It is the first solid food she has eaten since breakfast. Her head is heavy with wine. She knows that if she stands up now, she will not manage the walk to her pensione with dignity. She orders more food, a craft of water, and no wine. She will remain here until the numbness at the back of her head thins. She starts on the bread. <sighs> those winter months with Mimi were a godsend. If not for Paris, I would have been crushed by those areopalas, she thinks. It's true. Minette has received numerous telegrams from her clients requesting her early return so that work on their house can continue under her direction. She recalls the Ariapala's latest fearful demand that she provide them some guarantee that their house would not succumb to an earth slip. She shrugs at the thought, then imagines the relief she might feel at watching the house and everyone in it swept away by the rain. After London, it was Venice, the Renaissance city, gilded, lustrous, an exercise in proportion, a marriage of water and stone. Never mind that the city sinks, the romance of it is too great to ignore, she thinks. Islands of arches and campanelli, Palladio's basilica, the Piazza San Marco, all of it fainting frame by frame into the Adriatic. Even Rome, for all its claims to immortality, will lie in dust one day, she thinks. Ultimately, all our work will find its match in the elements, stone or concrete, brick or glass. She stares at her empty wine glass, remembers why she hasn't ordered any, then orders another. There has been no letter since Paris. When she arrived in Venice, she found herself drawn along the bridges and piazzas of the city, strolling beside handsome young men, all of whom claimed they had fallen in love with her. Mimi's painter friend, Francesco, was back in Venice and offered to take Minette on a tour of the city's water waterways last week. Sitting in a gondola with him, she felt the pull of the water beneath her like temptation. 
It would not be difficult to believe everything any one of these young men says to me, if only for a few days, she thinks. His silence makes the option all the more attractive, yet every time she imagines herself reaching out, it is to Corbu and no one else. Minette feels that urge again, that churning, knotting need that seizes her when she is not with him. She has some wine and takes up her pen. In the absence of your words, I allow myself to be charmed by others, she writes. She describes her gondola ride with Francesco with enthusiasm. Francesco is especially loquacious and beautiful, in a godlike way, she adds. That is to say, beyond reach, as all divinity ultimately is. But to sit in a gondola and listen to him speak passionately of Venice's bridges, its rising waters and softening bones, is like drinking a smooth Merlot. Which is to say, he is rather delicious in his own way. She indulges in further detail how Francesco painted her while she sat on silk pillows and listened to him talk. She omits mention of her clothing, preferring to let him think the worst. Laughter. Minette opens her eyes and wonders when she had closed them. The piazza is unchanged. The man and his girlfriend stroke wife remain two tables away. Minette's food remains half-eaten. Her wine glass is empty. Her letter to Corbu is open, unfinished. She remembers their last conversation, his triumphant announcement as he lay next to her. They were on the floor of number 24, staring at the snow thickening against the front window. I will change the way people live, he had said. Of course he will, she thinks. He already has. Minette smooths out the unfinished letter, scorns her erratic penmanship, wonders what Corbu will think of her, then decides she doesn't care. She resumes writing. Here I am, Corbu, and you, you are crossing the ocean, finally, for a project that will change the way people live. That's what you whispered to me in Paris. Audacious words for any architect, except that the architect is you. And why else would you cross the ocean, Corbu? Certainly not for me. I would not let you, even if you offered. So... That's Minette in Italy, and I'm going to skip forward from there um, to Le Corbusier. So he receives this letter in Paris, and I should say that the year is 1951. Um, and now Corb has gone to England um, to an international congress of architects and What's significant here is that he met Minette at the previous um, International Congress of Architects, um, and now he's at Siam, as it's called. Weeks later, he is in Hodston for Siam 8, the letter unfinished, the story untold. Architects from around the world, India, Japan, Israel, have come to talk about the city and its heart but she is not there. Unexpectedly, the architect feels her absence like a weight in his chest. In her last letter, that letter he received like a glass of water, she wrote to him of heart and soul, and here in Hodston, this is all they talk of. Siam 8 devotes itself to the new city, and the architect's plans for this new city will free people from the drudgery of their machine existence. They will be rescued by the architect and others like him and returned to their nature, to walk, to run, to interact as social beings rather than automata. The heart of the new city is inseparable from its site. It draws its rhythm from its location, the angle of the sun, the steady gait of the hills, the incline of the plains. The new city does not protrude unnaturally, but assumes a position that, in retrospect, could only have been made for, her, for it. Ah, her point about that palace in Ceylon, thinks the architect. What was it called? Ah, yes. Sigiria. The architect nods. A city imposed on a site is a city that is at odds with its surroundings. Thus dislocated, it cannot breathe. It loses its rhythm. Its heart ceases to beat. Such a city is capable of spawning only robots engaged in hollow enterprise 
denied the possibility of an inner life. The architect considers his own inner life and is startled to find her folded within it, like a chrysalis tucked under a leaf. He rereads her letter, which he which has been in his breast pocket since he received it, and feels the first prick of jealousy as he arrives at her description of the young Italians. He writes, So you have been in Rome, Wazul, where there have been plenty of young men to interpose themselves between you and Corbu. You were captivated by this Francesco. Why not the other? The other is Francesco Borromini and his Baroque churches. The architect was impressed by San Carlo alla Quattro Fontaine with its alternating convex and concave entrance. People flocked to it for its engineering complexities. Too bad these are worn on its skin, those guts hanging outside for all to balk at, he thinks. Then writes, But given that you were taken by this Francesco and not that, perhaps it was Bernini who caught your eye instead. The quaking marble robes, St. Teresa's ecstatic, half-opened mouth. A mouth so familiar to us, is it not, Petit Oiseau? The gold-tipped arrow, the shower of sparks shooting down behind them. Bernini's Capella Cornaro is the only thing worth seeing in that bordel Santa Maria della Vittoria. But Bernini saves himself by making real the voluptuousness of spiritual ecstasy. Did it take your breath with it, Minette? Of course it did. Who can stand unaffected before it? The architect feels his own breath quickening. We do not have enough time, he thinks. If I had known you were coming to see me, he writes. Never mind. We got to the point anyway. We were both greedy for it. This old man was too eager to hold youth in his arms again. And you did not complain, did you? The architect closes his eyes, remembers her mouth opening like a flower. No, she did not complain. Thank you very much. Uh, you're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM, and uh, we're talking to uh, Shiromi Pinto about her book Plastic Emotions. And actually, while we're, I just mentioned the title, perhaps uh, before I go back into a- and asking you about some of the ways that mm. I think there were really good bits to choose because of the way that they evoke place and also the kind of the different... Um, yes the different uh, sort of tones and sort of modes of the book, but I'm just going to park that for a second because I'll forget otherwise. <laughs> the title itself, Plastic Emotions. Uh, yes, people ask me that question a lot. Um, so Plastic Emotions, I took that the, the phrase from um, Le Corbusier's, you know, seminal work towards a new architecture. And in fact, I begin the um, book with a quote from towards a new architecture, um, which perhaps explains it a little bit. Um, so he says, the architect, by his arrangement of forms, realizes an order which is a pure creation of his spirit. By forms and shapes, he affects our senses to an acute degree and provokes plastic emotions. So Le Corbusier was thinking about space and the architectural space as a kind of poetic space, actually, and that it needs to provoke emotion. Now, I'm not talking about plastic as in polymers. I'm mm-hmm. talking about plastic as in, you know, something that's elastic as well. And, and molded by... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so this is, this, I mean, I would love it if readers also had their own interpretation of what it means. Um, but effectively, it's about that kind of elasticity and plasticity of emotion um in relationships and there's a kind of plasticity to the emotion between Minette and Le Corbusier and also amongst the many characters that populate this novel so it really is about that kind of you know it's about relationships and interactions Mm. Um, but the rest I would leave up to a reader to kind of you know define because I like to I like to hear what other people you know what other people think really yeah well I suppose that that sort of definition of, of plasticity as in something very physical mm. is um yeah sort of very different to as you say the kind of the pla- the plasticity of probably what um 
the kind of the Kibuse in here would associate with like um, the ephemerality of like American culture or something. Yes. He's quite anti-American. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh, he hated America. <laughs> um, it's really hilarious. I think I enjoyed writing those parts. <laughs> Not that I really hate it, America, it can, but it comes across. <laughs> um, but the but to go back to um, the sort of the questions that uh, yes. arose while you're reading about the. As I said, I think there were good bits to choose because it's um, because they the very evocative of place, and it mm. seems like that's something that you were very uh, concerned with. In, mm. in this. And it was partly it was that in response to um, to De Silva's like whole sort of um, ethos of making her architecture sort of very mm. place rooted. And how did that sort of this is a very uh, becoming quite a long question now but how did that uh i'm interested in how that um shaped the sort of the trips that you made uh mm. that you're talking about to, as part of the sort of yeah. imaginative research of this gosh that's a good question i mean i think of course because it is a novel about two architects inevitably they're going to be thinking about you know the the and and talking about place but equally she was very concerned about place and corb um when he talks about the fact that a landscape you know and and its buildings need to need to work together in harmony this is echoing a previous comment that Minette has made in the book where she talks very specifically about this and really in contradiction almost to um, that kind of idea of monumentality in architecture so Yes, you know, um, some of this concern with place is is related to her own or Minette's theories about architecture. Um, but also, of course, you know, in order for me to evoke that as well, I needed to do quite a lot of physical research. So I wanted to see what these buildings mm. looked like in their context and um, and be able to really write to write them um you know, in a in a kind of credible way, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess again, you know, just going back to the fact that this is a book about architecture, but also nation building. Mm. So you know, we're talking about a period after independence. It's a period of real idealism, you know, and I think Le Corbusier was also very idealistic about mm. you know building Chandigarh. Um, and Nehru, you know, was seeing this as the new direction for India. Meanwhile, um, Minette went down a very, you know, quite a different path, but she was still really wanting to be um, uh, involved in that kind of national project of, you mm. know, building building this new independent Ceylon. Um, and so again, you know, place is important when we're mm. talking about that so yeah and because you, you use it as a the sort of framing framing device like the prologue of, uh, of yes. the student going to visit the the buildings is that is that sort of yes is that the, the where the the authorial figure sort of like has a, a shadow <laughs> was that me is that is that the question um well i mean you know to some extent i guess yes i i sort of had to it's funny when i first when i was first writing this i didn't have a prologue um the prologue came really late and i it came after some feedback not 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 in the editing process per se, but from, you know, I kind of shared it with different people. And um, and I realized that it was a bit, it would be a bit difficult for people to even engage with this story without knowing, without having some kind of frame mm. because she's not very well known. And I think in a way you kind of need to know, you need to know a bit of the trajectory of her life in order mm. to feel compelled to kind of read on. Um, and so I had to, in a way, insert, I guess, you know, my own observations into into that prologue, obviously. But, th of course, that's not really me. But, mm. um, but, yeah, those are my observations. And I did go to see her house. Mm. And it was shocking to see. And it was really very very sad and that was many years ago so i don't think any of it exists anymore hmm. yeah um and no one's really no one's acted to preserve that house so yeah <laughs> yeah 
Sorry, just you saying frame there. This isn't really particularly a point. It reminded me of the very nice bit in the the first <laughs> section you read uh, about uh, the Piazza San Marco. Mm. Uh, all of it's fainting frame by frame into the Adriatic. Yes. Very, very nice image. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but the other th just thinking about the the, the prologue um, and that sort of structural aspect of it, and like it sort of reminded me of something else I found interesting, like the mm. kind of different sort of modes and tones you shift between like that there in the sections you read they're sort of it's um the respective thoughts of, of Met and, and Corbusier as they're as they're composing sort of letters in their minds but sometimes you shift into sort of like uh quite straightforwardly sort of uh, epistolary mm -hmm. kind of format mm -hmm. and I was interested in how you arrived at you know, why why you thought you wanted to shift between those yeah, why it's not a straightforwardly it's not like a letter from her and a letter from him mm. and a letter from her it moves around more than that so you can again you can see how I've actually built this book it was it was an exercise in kind of building a structure initially it was purely epistolic um but an epistolic book is quite frustrating to some extent because you can only see you know what the that writer that particular character is willing to show you yeah. and i felt like there was a lot more that i wanted to say in this book because although the relationship between le corbusier and minette forms the sort of backbone there are many other characters and this is as much a book about kind of politics and history mm. and in order to kind of really do that aspect of the of the narrative justice i needed to move into the third person and so i and also i felt like just having one letter after another actually was a bit wearying as well um and slightly false because there's certain things you have to do when you're writing to kind of you know keep them I guess keep the pace going mm. um, which then makes the letter slightly false sometimes um, and maybe I'm just not talented enough really to write you know a fully epistolic novel so I felt like I also have this habit of really liking to change to change perspectives a lot mm. I, I think I'm a little bit I get bored I don't know <laughs> anyway so I kind of went you know I, I thought actually I'd like to bookend this novel with their letters mm. so that you have their voices and really at the beginning you only have her voice because his voice doesn't come in until quite a ways into the novel mm. um but i i deliberately set out to do that so that i could you know tackle some of these other themes that i wanted to um and i could only really do that in the third person um, um and occasionally in the first person but through the voices of some other characters mm. like the prime minister who mm. turns up suddenly um so yeah i mean i think I, that, that was absolutely deliberate um once i'd been through many recensions of this text mm. when i came to that because something Final that the conclusion. yeah, uh, yeah. thanks that uh, something that having the the the, the, the letters there are sort of part of the text but not all of it sort of um maybe reflects is uh the way that you're kind of starting with like the like the archive of what's there and then sort of extrapolating and you're adding your imagination to it yeah because she did write a memoir didn't she she wrote an autobiography it was a really weird not weird actually extraordinary and i think sort of um what's the word like you know she was really looking to the future i mean it's the kind of thing you wouldn't normally find it's like a scrapbook mm. and it's it's literally like her archive but in written form because she includes you know photos of um letters that le corbusier sent to her you know some drawings that picasso did for her a uh, photo that henri cartier bresson took because she knew him as well i mean it's just, you know, even things like, uh, you know, um, a receipt that, mm. so she's just got all these different um, parts of her archive arranged in almost a higgledy-piggledy fashion in this first volume, which is called The Life and Work of an Asian Woman Architect. Mm. Um, and it's like this great big coffee table sized book. And I'm so 
I like I'm so grateful that I have a copy of that because mm. it is out of print now um, and there were very few copies actually printed mm. um, and I think there's a copy at the um, library at the AA actually mm. um, and that was a fantastic resource for me because you know she does talk a lot about you know her th all of her thoughts her thinking about architecture her blueprints um um, her family history um her her um, thinking around you know the history of our architecture um, or Asian architecture rather all of this is included in in that first volume but sadly she died before she could mm. write her second volume um, and somewhere we don't even know where this archive actually is mm. this is another I feel like that could be a really fantastic documentary, um, just searching for that archive because a lot of people are looking for it mm. and there's a lot of mystery surrounding it. <laughs> um, but it is extraordinary because it has, I mean, I think, you know, there are letters from David Lean in there, there's Corb's letters, um, and we only see very few of his letters in her, in her book. And I'm pretty sure she has only chosen to show some of those letters because they are very private. Mm. But even reading those, you can see just how much affection there was between them. It's, mm. a, it's, really, it's a really sweet relationship. But they also, you know, they did talk shop as well. So mm. was, he really respected her. And mm. You see that in those letters. Um, but yeah, so that was one of my principal sources um, in writing this book and you're right this kind of traveling from the sort of view of the outsider effectively or the explorer and then leaping into in a way it's this discovery of these letters I guess and then kind of I guess tracking back and then taking a more um, third-person view of what's happening mm. I think I think that that journey is quite it's, it, I think it's necessary for this book and for, for the reader to actually really understand what's going on. Mm. This is quite complicated. I suppose also, also like another, like that's all strung along the, you know, each sort of chapter is, mm. has the, you know, is, is date stamped. So yes. you have like that's, I mean, because, and so you thread because, you know, a really big part of it is both this, I mean, because, well, you move the, as as you move, and you, you mentioned this in the kind of author's note that you you move around the 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 sort of specific date of various mm. kind of building projects. Mm. I d well, I did more. I played more with the chronology of her life than I did necessarily with the buildings. Um, most of the builds are actually, if I remember correctly, are actually pretty accurate in terms okay. of when they happen there might be some slight changes here and there but there are sort of big things that happened in her life which I've changed quite a lot mm. um, so you know I had her I had her mother die before her father did in mm. fact her father di died first um, and then I changed the character of her sister because well you know, it's fiction and, you know, you need her sister was an extraordinary woman as well. And really this very bohemian and loose character. And, you know, you can't have so many of them in one <laughs> book. So I needed to have some kind of foil. Um, so I, I had to sacrifice poor Marsha's memory and um, make a completely different character of her. Um, my friend who who told me, you know, who, who was kind of in a way an inspiration for this book, was telling me about his own response to the book. And he said, oh, my God. And when I was reading it, I thought, oh, my God, you got her character wrong because he knew Marsha. Mm. Um, so this is the friend that introduced you? So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he knew that family yeah. um, and um, quite well. So and uh, and then he said, oh, but then I realized, you know, what you were doing. So mm. I... Um, uh, I fully anticipate some people kind of, uh, particularly in Sri Lanka, people from the sort of who knew the family to <laughs> criticize me. But at the end of the day, it's fiction. So we have the freedom to do what we want. 
yeah. <laughs> that was actually you, you've anticipated one of the questions because uh. you, you mentioned people in, in her life that you spoke yeah. to so that, yes this. well I did I mean in so, I didn't necessarily speak to her family because there is this you know when you start speaking to people who actually knew her and as a writer you need to have some kind of freedom and I feel like often the people that I spoke to had their own agenda mm. and they wanted me to do things I felt like they were they were expecting me to do something I don't know what it was really but you know I think if I had spent time talking to the family I would have I might have felt obliged to present her differently yeah and I might have lost the kind of freedom that that I you know that I had and that I was retaining while I was trying to write this book so I deliberately didn't um go too close if you mm. know what I mean so I mean I had her autobiography and then I did speak to a number of um architects you know who actually knew her um and then I had her letters from the Fondation Le Corbusier. They had all of her letters, the letters that she wrote to Corbin, really like, what more do you need? Because mm. actually, you know, there's work that I need to do as a writer. Um, otherwise it does become pure biography and mm. that's not what I was doing, so. And the sort of the balance between, because that's why you set up nicely, we're reading those two sections uh, mm. of some of, uh, of Manette's um, perspective and some of uh, Cabutier's. Um, mm. What was the sort of like the what were the kind of internal calculations you made about like when sort of like you because know, and this is one of the sort of the 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 narrative threads of the story about his being you know, sort of fame and his mm. sort of reputation um, and how that did you ever worry that that might sort of overtake the narrative or that you know, having him yeah. him in there might well I mean. The thing is, he was there. He was a part of her life, and he was a big part of her life. She did really see him as this great mentor. So I couldn't not have him there. Mm. Um, and also, I felt like there was an interesting counterpoint between the two of them because here she was at the beginning of her ca career. He was kind of towards the. He was at the height of his career. Mm. So, you know, that dynamic between this very. Um, this great, you know, father of modern architecture, and this um, pioneer of modern architecture in in Sri Lanka. I just feel like that's not a story that anyone has told, mm. as far as I know. And so, you know, why not have him there, and why shouldn't he be in there as well? Because, um, because he had a role to play in her life. Um, and I was just as interested in kind of exploring his interiority and his kind of you know this 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 um balance between this older man this younger woman and all of the kind of i guess also personal um tensions that that come to play right in mm. in that and i also found it really fascinating to explore the male ego and there's this thing about you know he was an alpha male really right and and then you know you as as we go through the book you know he's aging and he's mm. kind of losing and he's coming to terms with this so it's this whole kind of i don't know i guess this this i guess it's quite poignant to see him really to see his humanity as well mm. so he he's very egotistical uh, you mm. know and i and i don't shy away from that but but i also have sympathy for him as a as a person so um i wanted to i i think maybe show that kind of softer side of him as well mm. um and uh yeah maybe maybe that more human side of him because i i feel like that's not necessarily very well known either because one Sorry. of the one of the books you, you mention in the in the sort of uh, the acknowledgement acknowledgement yeah. is uh, Flora Samuel's uh, Le yes. architect and feminist. Yes, exactly. Is, um, I know. Like trying to sort of address that uh, yes. idea of him as a yes. Sort of I mean, it's it's weird. I wonder. Like, I'm like, is he a feminist? Like, Prince was a feminist. Like, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, like, Prince and the <laughs> <laughs> you know, like because he was 
you know, he he did he really did support Minette and he really did think a lot of her and he really did respect her her thinking. That's without a doubt. So he certainly saw her as more than just this exotic creature from, you know, um, the Orient. But on the other hand, he, the, you know, he used women. Mm. And um, I mean, I, I don't think he really used her. But he certainly, there were a number of women that he used in his life. And, you know, I, I'm not sure whether he was really a feminist, but, hmm. you know, he certainly, all I can say is he certainly respected Minette. Hmm. Um, so, yes, I used that as a source um, because it, you know, it had an interesting perspective, but I didn't necessarily <laughs> bring all of that into the, into the novel. And then you have as a sort of... Um a sort of interesting sort of miniature inversion you have uh, i don't i don't know how sort of based mm -hmm. in sort of a in, in the biography this is but the the episode where she has the danes or the young man in her in her in her practice who, mm. you know a much younger man who yes yes so that is not something she necessarily covers apart from saying that she um she invited ulrich plesner to um, to assist her in her studio, and that's true. Ulrich Plesner wrote this scandalous uh, memoir, scandalous in, in Sri Lanka. A lot of people are upset about it. Mm. And it is, uh, it is, for other reasons, kind of scandalous. And he does, um, he does talk about this um, uh, relationship that he had with Minette. Was it true? Wasn't it true? I'm not sure. But, you know, I she was she was so far ahead of her time. You know, she I mean, this is horrible to say. OK, and this is such a sexist thing to say. But apparently she was known as the bike in Candy. So this just gives you an idea of how sexist um, they, you know, this mentality, you know, looking at a woman who actually mm. was a she was a sexual person. And she was she was fine about that, but obviously, you know, people cast aspersions on her. Mm. She, so just thinking about that, I'm like, okay, that's come from somewhere. She's obviously, you know, she did have relationships with men. She never got married. She was she was she was an ambitious woman, um, and she, uh, yeah, she had these relationships, and I don't think that it's too far-fetched to say that she probably had some kind of relationship with the Dane. Mm. And I did think that it was quite... It was really interesting to have this kind of parallel, mm. but it happens a bit later in her life. However, he does sort of betray her, doesn't he? Mm. I won't go into all that detail. <laughs> people can find out, out. <laughs> yes, exactly, themselves. I mean, there's also the... It becomes the Cabusier... Uh, Minette relationship becomes interesting. I mean, it does it, that also kind of reflects in both directions? And this is kind of like your your point that it, you know, mm. it's, a, it's a it's a relationship that goes two ways, uh, mm. and about because it becomes a way of um, a different sort of angle on the Shandigar project and mm. kind of like the the whole sort of you know, hit, hit the sort of east west attitudes. Yes. Well, again, I wanted to again I wanted to explore that as well and. As I said, you know, Le Corbusier's kind of approach to Chandigarh was, <clears throat> you know, it's still contentious today, right? People go there and they either love it or they hate it. And you look at it and you think, was, were these buildings really built in accordance with the landscape and mm. the climate? Um, and he himself, he did actually have quite a lot of... <clears throat> I guess, conflict while he was building. Um, and he had a very specific view of how his buildings needed to be constructed. You know, and he and you know, he wanted the clean lines and I don't want any, you know, you know, when he talks about the guts hanging out there, he doesn't want, you know, these trellises coming down and ruining the lines on his building mm. and ruining the reflections in the pool, you know, which are meant to be perfect reflections of 
you know, and if you contrast that with Minette's approach, um, which is to, which, you know, in some of her buildings, which is to be really participatory and ask, you know, people to tell her how, um, you know, how they live and, you know, how many rooms do, do you need and, you know, where do you need the kitchen situated and are you going to use an outdoor kitchen? You mm. know, so, the, so she was, um, I, I, I wanted to kind of set up these two, the, these this contrast and also show how you know you have this western person going into a place like india and you know with all of the and yes he did have a degree of respect for india but at the same time you know there there are these attitudes that no doubt he would have had about um you know the labor there and um and then the kind of really simplistic maybe you know attitudes about um the spirituality of india and all of those things and i I guess I wanted to, I wanted to um, expose those as yeah. well, um, but yeah, I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> I feel like I'm telling everybody everything, but um, but yeah, I, I kind of, I, even Mimi's character does a similar thing. So it's that sort of looking at, again, you're in this post-colonial context, mm. but this, the colonial mindset is still is still there, whether it's conscious or. Mm you know, unconsciously exercised. Well, I suppose it also becomes a, a nice way of um, moving on to think about the way that, um, I mean, Minette's uh, sort of movie, going to London and coming back and mm. uh, sort of that whole, you, know, you mentioned the word post-colonial there and mm. the, um, the whole sort of undertow of, well, not undertow, it's, you know, sometimes it is the... Yeah, sort of. It's in the foreground as well, like the Sri Lankan politics. Mm. Was that some? Because her, because if I understand correctly, Manette's father was a politician, and her mother was a suffragette. Yeah, that's correct. They were a very political family. They were also the interesting thing about her. I mean, I didn't put this in the book, but her father was actually, you know, he. You know, I said that they were a really privileged family, but actually he wasn't when he first started. And when he married her mum, her mother was a burger, which is a sort of, you know, European stroke, Sri Lankan. Mm. And um, her family was like really against it. And he experienced a lot of discrimination as well. So um, during kind of colonial Ceylon, you know, they had all these clubs, like the burger club and the, you know, whatever. And he was excluded from those clubs because of his... Um, background because hmm. he actually was from a very simple background and initially he also couldn't speak English very well and these were all reasons to you know look down on him so but he was quite phenomenal and he did really rise you know in the ranks and he became this politician but they were also very um, focused on equality and they were very progressive and Minette got uh, a lot of her politics from you know, from her dad and from her mum as well. Um, and so it's inevitable that in that post-colonial period, you know, Ceylon was, the, the, these are the seeds of that war, mm. you know, that then kind of just decimates the country for 30 years. Um, and all of that starts to come out, you know, once Ceylon is independent and Minette is building during this time of um, upheaval, political mm. upheaval, and you can't ignore that. Mm. Um, and in fact, it's again part of the architecture of that country. Mm. Um, and I talk about the prime minister as an architect as well. Mm. Um, and so, you know, all of that is 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 essential, really, for the story, um, for the story itself. And I think, you know, there was no way I could have written this. Well, like just ignoring the politics because mm. it's just, you know, it's part and parcel of. Yeah, I mean, cause it's I mean, the landscape. That's absolutely. what it is. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and a lot of the divisions that you describe are very sort of raw still, and it feels mm. very present. Mm. It's very present today. I mean, if you know, we know that at the moment there's terrible. You know, there were those terrible attacks um, at Easter, and now there are um, horrible. Uh, attacks on Muslims in in Sri Lanka, so these sorts of tensions and the attacks are 
I mean, I, they're led very much by this sort of fascist Buddhist element, um, the Buddhist nationalists, um, and they also figure quite prominently in the book. Mm. Um, I'm sure there'll be repercussions for my talking about that <laughs> um, in some circles. But anyway, the fact is that, you know, the roots of all of that are in the, you know, are kind of explored in this book. And you can mm. kind of see, when you look at the politics today, where it kind of came from. Well, there's an awful lot to yes. be going on in there for people yes. to, to read the book. Uh, yes. p p plastic Emotions out, uh, out next week, possibly, or go to the uh, the launch at the yes. Architecture Association tomorrow yes, in, in Bedford do. Square. Uh, also, if uh, you're not in London there's um, a or, and happen to be in Liverpool on the 18th of July, uh, Shiromi is doing <laughs> an event at Tate, uh, Tate um, Liverpool um, with Michelle Hulston of, of Girl Power Liverpool. Uh, and then if, if you are back in London and later in, <laughs> in July, <laughs> there's also Owen Haverley and Olivia Sujek are doing an event with Shiromi at the London Review of Bookshop, Books Bookshop on the mm -hmm. 23rd of July. Uh, thank you so much, Shiromi Pinto. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to try and play out with a, a, a song, which is a, a piece of music which is um, mentioned uh, in the book. That's uh, right. Stravinsky. A little bit of um, The Firebird from Stravinsky. And you can read the book and find out exactly yes. how it comes in. Exactly. <laughs> thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you.
This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.